Hello everyone, my name is Reese Karlinski and this is Young History, episode 145 on Nepal. The capital of Nepal is Kathmandu. The name of this country has a few different theories behind it. It could have came from the Nuwari word Nepa, which was the people's name for Kathmandu. That people group's name for Kathmandu. The Gopal dynasty that ruled here had people called Nepa, which is another explanation, maybe just Nepal is just the land of the Nepa people. And then the word Nepalia from Sanskrit means at the foot of the mountain, which Nepal most definitely is. So Nepal could be the land at the foot of the mountain, among other things. Now to get into some cool facts about Nepal, this country has one of the largest ranges of elevation of any countries in the world because some parts of it are thousands of feet high at the Himalayas, which is in Nepal, including Mount Everest, which is the tallest mountain in the world. And then other parts are very low valleys that are close to sea level range. So this country is very diverse in that aspect. Some other nature facts are that 40% of the nation is forested, and cows are regarded as sacred in Nepali Hindu belief, so most people here only eat chicken and fish as part of their protein in their diet. English and Nepali are spoken here as the two major languages, but Nepali is the national language, and English is the lingua franca, mainly for business and trade. Despite being a minority religion, Buddhism is very important to the country and is represented on the flag of Nepal. The flag itself has red for bravery of the Nepali, blue for peace and harmony, and the shape is a double pennant, which is what most South Asian countries used to have as their flag. The moon and sun on here represent Buddhism and Hinduism. Another thing about Nepal is that it has the Tihar festival, which is a week-long Hindu celebration that includes Kukutahar, the day of the dog. Dogs are celebrated and blessed with a tikka, a red mark applied to their forehead. The animals are also given flower garlands and offered food as part of the festival. Hindus believe that the dog is the messenger of Yamraj, the god of death. And by keeping dogs in good humor, they will be able to appease Yamraj himself. And that pretty much gets us to the end of the little intro here. So I'm not going to say anything else. I just want to get into this history because there's a lot to uncover here. Despite this country's geographical size and odd location, there's a lot that went into this nation being developed as its own entity rather than being folded into a larger nation like India or China, which it is right in between. So this is going to be a fun one. I'm very glad you guys are here and that's going to be it. So I don't want to say anything else because we're going to learn a whole lot just going through this. So with that being said, thank you guys for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History and this is Nepal. You guys enjoy. Our origins begin when the Indian tectonic plate converged into the Tibetan plateau to form the Himalayan mountains. The first people arrived to this area around 60,000 years ago as they made their move from Africa across the Eurasian steppes and into Greater Asia and then Oceania. People from the Far East and areas that would make up modern day China, Korea, and other such countries, also Siberia, also made a great migration to this area millennia ago. But better documentation of history does not start until many millennia later. Around 2500 to 2000 BC, the Indus Valley Civilization, which is one of the greatest early civilizations in the world, moved into the valley of the Himalayan mountains. The congregation of different cultures from the Indus River Valley and the ones from the farther east like Siberia created the very early Nepalese culture that was present in this region of the Himalayan mountains. Bukhtaman was a prince of a North Indian dynasty. Members of this dynasty followed the Hindu deity Krishna. The mythology is that Krishna was chasing a demon out of North India and ended up fighting it in the area where Nepal is today. So Bhuktaman walked the same path as Krishna into the Nepal Valley. He would go on to unite the people of this area into one political unit. 
borders were carved out and the Gopal dynasty was officially established. Upon first arriving to the region, the Gopals were cowherders that used pastoralism as their main source of food and survival. The Gopal dynasty lasted for 800 years, and they are very likely to be the ones that built the Pashupatinth Hindu temple, which is one of the most famous spots in all of Nepal. The dynasty had only eight rulers, and there wasn't a lot that went on internally. Each ruler inherited rule from their father. There was not a lot of dynastic issues somehow, some way, and there was a lot of internal stability for this very, very tiny political unit. Eventually, the Mahishapal people moved into the lands and overthrew the Gopal. The Mahishapal people were buffalo herders that tried to spread their agricultural influence across their region so that more of their people could survive. However, they were overthrown by the Kirats. The Kirat people, first mentioned in the famous Indian epic, the Mahabharata, were superior warriors in the region and were clearly far superior than the Mahishapal. And there isn't a lot that goes on for a little bit with the Kirat in power, but there's greater interactions outside, which we're going to get into in a sec. But a much more important thing we do need to talk about is one specific man in Nepal that goes on to influence millions of people. His name is Siddhartha Gautama. He was born in 563 BC. He was of the noble family in Nepal, but debatably, maybe part of North India. This is a huge split between the two, but for the sake of the Nepal argument, we're going to say this here. Gautama was heavily sheltered from the outside world by his noble parents. Eventually, he made a trip outside his palace and saw the suffering, starvation, and abuse that humans had to bear with. So he gave up his life of nobility in hopes to challenge the problems he saw. After reaching out to many wise religious leaders and members of the early academia that was around him, he was unsatisfied with the solutions or a lack of solutions they offered, so he took it upon himself. He sat under a fig tree and meditated. As the story goes, he stayed there meditating until he reached spiritual awakening, and once he did, he felt that he had discovered the end of suffering. Upon his awakening, he became known as the Buddha. His religion, Buddhism, started to spread across all of Asia and is today the fourth largest religion in the world. Around the same time was Maurya, India. It controlled parts of Nepal around 200s BC. Ashoka was a great Buddhist Indian king at the time. He made the trek to the land of modern Nepal to gain more connection to Buddhism because he believed this is where Siddhartha Gautama was most connected to his faith. Despite the warrior culture of the Kirat, they were still defeated by the Soma dynasty. The Soma had a short rule and were overthrown by the Lich Chichavi dynasty. Now, the Lich Chichavi dynasty was extremely influential and is considered the dynasty that ruled the golden age of Nepal. King Manadev was the first king of the dynasty. Under his leadership, huge advancements were made in the civilization. Coin currency was established, new measurements of land were created, and many great temples were rebuilt or improved. Art trade also became the binding force between the early Tibetan people and the Lichi Chavi. This established an early basis for relations between Nepal and Tibet, but there would be a lot of up and down as history unfolds. Eventually, the Lichi Chavi were replaced by the Takaris around 816 CE. One of their most influential leaders was King Gunakama Dev. He famously created the temple of Kastamandap from a single tree. The capital city, Kathmandu, takes its name from this tree and the nation that built it. Kathmandu also established Indra Jatra, a major Hindu holiday in Nepal. The legend goes that Indra, the lord of the heavens, spent eight days on earth in search of flowers for his godly mother. While he was here, he was captured by humans because they felt he was trying to steal flowers. But he was not treated harshly. Once his mother came down and revealed both of their godly status I, the eight days that Indra was present on Earth began to be celebrated as the Indra Jantra Festival. Then with the Takaris, they ended up losing stability in the region, and they were mainly torn apart by familial battles for control because of dynastic rule issues and the usual thing that happens when a noble power starts to fall apart. Power shifted back and forth between the battling families, and the divisions in the Takaris allowed the Malas to move in and take power. 
Mueller rule happened very fast. They took over because of the instability and they just had a more well-established unit. And a lot of these dynasties and different people I'm talking about kind of have this same South Asian descent. They're peoples that formed either near the Himalayas, in this Himalayan mountain valley in Tibet. All sorts of peoples like this kind of form into one overall different people group. It's hard to say that there's, you know, one consistent race, but it's also hard to place them in a bunch of different ones. So it's just people that live around what is Nepal today is Bhutan, this Himalayan mountain range, and the Mall are one of them. So they ended up ruling Nepal from 1200 until 1779. The dynasty also had to deal with the brutal Kathmandu invasions by Sultan Shamsuddin Ilas, who was a Muslim sultan from Bengal. Nonetheless, the Mala were able to resist this and started to implement many different systems. One of the more nasty ones was the caste system that remained in Nepal for centuries. So the caste system was pretty much a societal structure system, similar to what we have in America with upper, middle, and lower class. And then it also has that kind of aspect of it being more discriminatory, like the early Spanish system did in the New World with Spaniards, mestizos, mulatos, and blacks in that order because there's a ranking based on race and things, you know, of their social status and stuff. A lot of a lot of bigotry goes into it. It was similar with this one. So at the top were the Brahmins, which were traditionally priests and scholars and were responsible for religious rituals and teachings. There was the Kshatriyas, which were warriors and rulers, traditionally responsible for protecting and governing the society. There was the Vaishyas, which were merchants and farmers responsible for economic activities and trades. There was Shudras, which were laborers and service providers, traditionally engaged in the manual or service-oriented work. And then at the very lowest was the Dalits, which were historically known in India and here as untouchables. They occupied the lowest position in the traditional caste hierarchy, and they have faced social discrimination, exclusion, and economic marginalization throughout the entire time the system exists. It was so bad that they were called untouchable, not for the fact that you couldn't get near them, but for the fact that touching them or being near them actually lowered your status as a person. So, so it's very present in India as well, so I'll unravel it even more when I do that large large historical nation and it'll be fun but it's a brutal system to try and figure out it's not it's fun to learn about it's definitely not fun to see in practice but historically this went on for a very long time but nonetheless this is a very deep-rooted system that went on for so long it's a lot to understand but it is good to understand as why social structures were the way they were and one of the doctrines of this was called endogamy which is Marriage within one's caste being pretty much the only option. You were meant to marry people of your same class. Anyone who was seen as moving up was kind of seen as what we would call like a gold digger, and it wasn't super approved by society. And on the far side of it is if you were someone in one of the upper classes that dated down, this would obviously reduce your status in the societal view. One of the more prominent rulers of the Mala was Jayashthiti Mala, who ruled in the late 1300s. He expanded Hinduism and promoted its spread across the land. He is credited with instituting several administrative reforms. His efforts were aimed at ensuring fair and just governance, addressing societal issues, and a huge promotion for economic stability. He also introduced a system of taxation known as kipats to prevent the concentration of land in the hands of a few people rather than the people. This land tenure system was designed to ensure fair distribution of the land and its resources rather than it being concentrated in just one family or one group. Perhaps one of the most significant contributions was the formulation of a legal code known as the Muluki Ain. This legal code covered a wide range of issues, including social conduct, property rights, and criminal law. It was an attempt to establish a just and comprehensive legal framework that was meant to last. Jayashiri Mala is also noted for his policy of religious tolerance. Despite being a Hindu king, he respected the diversity of religious practices within his kingdom, and most especially, he respected and allowed the practice of Buddhism. 
And at the same time this was going on, there was also the Kasa kingdom to the west. It was a larger neighbor of the Masa. The Kasa kingdom was made up of over 20 different divisions, and then those same divisions hit the Masa because, because once Jayashithi finally passed, it was one of those things where a great leader followed by very weak rulers, and the people started to form their own cultures and wanted to represent themselves rather than be a part of this big political unit. And eventually, after divisions hit both, the language of the region was molded by the Kasa culture, which led to Nepali being created because the Kasa had a better grip on written script and what they wanted it to be, and their larger size allowed them to push this influence into the east where the Masa were. Nepali remains the national language to this day. When the Masa kingdom split, the most resistant to the idea of reunifications were the kingdoms of Badagon, Pant, and Kantapur. They had very serious disputes with each other, which made them completely resistant to the idea of being unified entirely. The Gorkha kingdom was started in central Nepal and started to spread its influence around in the 1700s. Because for this whole period, there's just a bunch of divisions. Nobody wants to be a part of a true unit, but once the Gorkha kingdom formed in the central part of what is now Nepal, there was now this strong unit with a lot of military power behind it that wanted to push out. And from this kingdom comes the most important person, in my opinion, in Nepali history, which is Prithvi Narayan Shah. He ruled from 1743 to 1768. In 43, he traveled to Nuakot, which was in the Masa lands, in hopes to go on to attempt an invasion of the Nepal Mandala Kingdom. The invasions of 1743 wasn't successful, but then he enlisted the help of another powerful military commander, Kalu Pandey. The united strength of both of these leaders resulted in victory in Nuakot. Shah found great success in the region and spread his kingdom across all of Nepal. He was the one to officially establish a unified Nepali state, calling it the Kingdom of Nepal. His rule was quite brutal for those that resisted him. He famously removed the nose of his adversaries as it was seen as a shameful practice to have your nose removed. Shah began to expand rule of Nepal over the Kirat kingdom as his last great triumph. In 1773, the patriarch of Nepal died at 52, and upon his death, his four wives had to commit sati. Sati was a Nepali practice that stated widows of any great man or ruler would have to sit upon the fire that his corpse burned in and die with it. This practice lasted until 1920 because it was seen as very honorable and it was seen as this whole thing where, you know, if your husband isn't here, why are you here? But this was obviously challenged by newer rhetoric, which considers women people too. And despite the long history of it, it is a practice that is frowned upon, obviously now, but also looked back as historically as a thing that was just a way to oppress women in a way and expecting this crazy thing of women. Because, of course, if a woman died, her husband was not expected to do this, but it was just a thing where men who already had multiple wives had to bring all their wives down with them. So it, it was an interesting practice, but nonetheless, it was, it was very much a part of the culture. The Kingdom of Nepal established a lot of different political systems and tried to maintain stability within itself. And this did go on for the entire time that Naraya Shah was in power, but things started to get a little shaky after. For a long time, Nepal had provided silver coins to Tibet as part of a trade agreement. But with all the instability that came with the unification effort, the quality of the silver coins dropped significantly. Tibet requests that the new kingdom of Nepal replace the tarnished coins with those in mint condition. Nepal simply didn't have the money for this because of the wars they had fought, and this caused a war with, ne with Tibet to break out. The Tibetan-Nepalese War was fought from 1788 to 1792. In 1788, the Nepalese invaded the Tibetan Plateau, which was owned by the Qing Dynasty China at the time. Of course, the war started mainly over the coin dispute, but there was also border issues that the Qing were trying to push forward. The mountainous terrain that the Nepalese lived in helped them develop a culture around survival and fighting, very similar to what happened with Switzerland, because once you're so isolated and you have to live and survive in mountains and hunt for food and all these things, 
there's a grit that comes with that and a lot of skills developed in using mountain guerrilla tactics to fight. So this actually led the Nepal Kingdom to become a very strong military force, so they were truly able to defeat the Qing Dynasty China and Tibet in this war. The Kingdom of Nepal won the war and established a tributary state over Tibet with the Treaty of Karun. This pushed China over the edge. The Qing Dynasty retaliated against this with an invasion of their own, which was starts upon Nepal in 1792. This is the Sino-Nepalese War. It was brutal, with a lot of back and forth, but Nepal was defeated and had to become a tributary state of Qing Dynasty China, because this time China attacked with pretty much as much of its force it could send into these mountains. The tributaries were paid to China, but China agreed to defend Nepal from any external threats. However, this did not happen. Nepal started to build up a real large debt with Britain because they traded away a lot of goods in a price deficit, or they received goods from Britain and did not pay off them fully. Rana Bahadur was a king in the late 1700s and early 1800s that let power go to his head as he made very brash decisions in Nepal. He had a lot of dynastic struggle because of the wives he married and his children. He was exiled from Nepal for a time, but returned to power once the British cut all ties with Nepal due to the high debt. Bahadur ended up establishing a dictatorship where he executed many of his opponents, even if they were children. There's also an odd story where he ordered all the citizens with smallpox to be exiled from the country in hopes that this disease would not spread to his son, and as the fates would have it, his son actually ended up dying of smallpox. Eventually, the overexertion of power led Bahadur's half-brother to killing him in hopes to better the nation, and then another royal family member actually killed his half-brother in retaliation. This much instability upset Binzim Thapa, who was a bodyguard for the royal family. He ended up leading a massacre of anyone in the Bahadur faction, because he felt they were all corrupt and would only lead Nepal to more conflict. He did the same thing to any of his own political opponents when he made his move to take power. This had been dubbed the Bahadur Call Massacre of 1806. The lack of legitimate next of kin allowed Bihimsen Thapa to lead the nation. But the kingdom was wildly unstable. Despite internal struggle, Thapa expanded the kingdom into the Garhwal region, thus bringing Nepal to its territorial peak. But with the expansion of Nepal to its territorial peak came clashes with the British. Britain had expanded the British East India Company across most of the Indian subcontinent. The hopes of the British were to expand trade to Tibet, but Nepal stood firmly in the way of this. The past debts that Nepal had to Britain, the refusal to allow trade with Tibet, and a brewing border dispute with British India because of the expansion of Nepal, culminated into a conflict between the two powers in 1814. The Anglo-Nepalese War was fought from 1814 to 1816. The British started the war by attacking on four fronts in hopes to overrun the country with superior technology. But the mountain fighting style and fortresses that were present in the Nepalese military proved very resilient against British tactics. So the British turned to siege starvation tactics. They cut off water and food from the fortresses. After 70 days of starvation, widespread surrender occurred in the south. In the north, the same starvation tactics were used, but the Nepalese resisted until the very end. All of Nepal surrendered, but did not ratify the peace treaty, so the British invaded again. The British moved in on the heart of the nation, but fighting ceased very quickly. The Sugali Treaty was signed and reduced Nepal's borders. Despite this treaty, Nepal continued to exist fully as a nation, but it just had to give up a lot of land and give trade concessions to the British to maintain this status. Gurkha soldiers were a special trained force of Nepalese fighters that held off Britain for as long as possible. They were extremely well-versed in guerrilla warfare and very secretive tactics of war. The British were heavily impressed by the combat capabilities of the Gurkha soldiers, so they actually funded them in order for them to become part of the British armed forces. Even 200 years later, these... Gurkha soldiers are still renowned in the British Army for their extreme efficiency, professionalism, and skill. 
Internally, Rajendra Bikram Shah ascended to the throne and ousted Bhimsen Thapa. Thapa was jailed and was told his wife would be stripped naked and humiliated in the streets. This corrupted Thapa's mind, and so he attempted suicide in jail, but it didn't work. So Bikram Shah ordered his half-dead, barely alive body to be dragged across the capital and then tossed him in a river without a funeral. Jung Bahadurana was the nephew of Bimsen Thapa's nephew. Went from being a soldier, okay. So he was a distant relative of the royal family. He rose from soldier to royal guard to king's bodyguard and eventually became very involved in politics by the mid-1800s. He opposed his uncle, Mahabar Bimsen Thapa, who was the nephew of the aforementioned Bimsen Thapa. His uncle was made the Prime Minister of Nepal by Queen Rajya so that he would approve her son's claim to be the heir to the throne in hopes to prevent Sudendra Shah from ascending the throne. Eventually, Mathabar Singh ended up denying the right of the Queen's son to ascend to power, and this caused her to enlist Jung Bahadurana, his nephew, to actually kill him and gain power that way. So Jung Bahadurana does this. He kills his own uncle, and this began the Khat Massacre of 1846. Jung Bahadur enlisted the help of his brothers to kill 40 members of the royal court. The hope was to change the system of governments in the country and get a sweet taste of personal revenge for what happened to his great uncle. Jung Bahadur was named prime minister by Queen Raja with hopes that he would do the same thing by placing her son as the next heir to the throne. But he also denied her son. Raja tried to have him killed, but it did not succeed. Jung Bahadur had the queen imprisoned, her cohorts executed, ousted the current king, and named her greatest enemy, Surendra Shah, the king of the nation. Surendra Shah was always the heir to the throne, but Queen Raja opposed him nonetheless. But that was only a title. Jung Bahadur was the true ruler of the country for this time. Jung Bahadur actually assisted the British military when they were battling during the Indian Mutiny. For his support, some of the former Nepal territory was returned to the kingdom. Jung Bahadur held ultimate power in the country and started to enact more and more authoritarian policies. Eventually, a third war broke out with Tibet. The war simply tore the nation apart. It costed them both a lot of human life and money, but Jung Bahadur started the Rana dynasty. And to say what happened at the end of that Tibet war, literally nothing. There was concessions given both sides, but it was overall a stalemate with a lot of life lost. And then it bounced back into the Rana dynasty. This lasted from 1846 all the way until 1951. The Rana were just as autocratic as the man that founded their dynasty. They heavily limited the rights and liberties of anybody in the nation who was not of Rana descent. One of the major doctrines was that most people not of the Rana dynasty were forbade from going to school so that the Rana could better control them. If someone spoke against the Rana dynasty, then they would very likely be executed or exiled. There was also an attack on many intellectuals in the nation because the Rana wanted their thoughts and the decisions they made for the people to be entirely universal and did not want people to have really any thoughts for themselves. And then comes World War I. The British made an alliance with Nepal, so they got a lot of Gurkha soldiers to fight in the war. And over one million British pounds were sent from Nepal to Britain as support for the war effort. Then, in World War II, Nepal actually declared war on Germany alongside Britain and sent 100,000 Nepali soldiers to go fight in Europe. The end of the war made Nepal realize how little they wanted to be connected with other powers and wanted to pursue some more isolation, but allow for trade, things of that sort, because they were very sick of getting tied up with Britain and these other powers, because the only people who didn't suffer from this were people at the very top. So, over the years, a growing discontent and resistance against Rana rule grew. Intellectuals, political activists, and members of the Nepali Congress, which was a political party founded in 1947, played crucial roles in mobilizing public opinion against the autocracy. The Nepali Congress sought the support from India for this anti-Rana movement. 
1950, following a border blockade imposed by India, the Rana government was forced to negotiate with the Nepali Congress. The Delhi Agreement, signed between the Rana rulers and Nepali Congress in November 1950, paved the way for political changes. The agreement called for the formation of an interim government that included the Nepali Congress, the removal of the Rana Prime Minister, and the return of King Trikhwan from exile. Because this whole time, that same bloodline that goes all the way back to Prithri Narayan Shah was still in power, and deserve to be the king based on the system that was made up. So these monarchs go all the way back to him and were supposed to be at the head of the government. But the Rana kind of usurped power through the government and made it so that the prime minister and his cabinet had kingly level powers. So negotiating for the return of King Trifuvan from exile was very huge. And this was known as the 1951 revolution, which resulted in the end of the Rana dynasty and the establishment of Nepal as a parliamentary democracy. King Mahendra of Nepal ascended the throne in 1951. Mahendra played a role in the negotiation of the Delhi Agreement between the Rana government and the Nepali Congress. In 1951, King Mahendra dismissed the first democratically elected government led by Nepali congressman and the prime minister, Matrika Prashad Koralai. He accused the government of being insufficient and corrupt. In 1960, King Mahendra dissolved the democratic government, imposed a state of emergency, and introduced the Panchat system. The Panchat system was an authoritarian partyless political system that centralized power in the monarchy. The dictatorial period lasted until about 1990. Mahendra faced heavy opposition, which materialized in the 1990 Nepalese Revolution. This revolution caused the Panchat to be abolished and a constitutional monarchy to be established in Nepal. This was a fine decision for everyone except for the Communist Party that wanted the nation to be a people's republic. The Communist Party had grown in popularity heavily over the previous three decades because of the influence of Communist China and the abusive rule of the former monarch and the Rana before them. The desire for the People's Republic was so strong that in 1996, the Communist Party attempted to oust the royal family. Divisions over this attempt split the nation and was one of the major causes of the Nepalese Civil War. This civil war was fought from 1996 to 2006. The conflict officially began on February 13, 1996, when the Maoists launched a series of attacks on police posts in various parts of the country. The Maoists aimed to overthrow the monarch. The conflict officially began on February 13, 1996, when the communists launched a series of attacks on police posts in various parts of the country. The government, led by King Gyendra, responded by deploying the Royal Nepalese Army, the RNA, to counter the insurgency. The conflict resulted in a cycle of violence, human rights abuses, and displacement. Political instability continued throughout the war, and the communists rejected all the parliamentary politics that happened. Instead, they opted for the armed struggle to continue. In 2001, there was the Nepalese Royal Massacre. The most widely supportive theory for why this happened is as follows. Crown Prince Dipendra wanted to marry a woman of his own choosing rather than the one that was chosen for him to appease royal purposes. This was heavily opposed by his mother, the queen. So in retaliation for his mother rejecting what he saw as true love, the crown prince shot not only his mother and father, but also several other members of the royal court, and then himself. This marked the end of the monarchy in Nepal. And this goes into a really interesting story. Exactly 10 generations after Prithvi Narayan Shah created the Shah monarchy, it ended, which was allegedly prophesized. The legend goes that Shah met an old sage when he was in power and gave him curd to eat. The sage regurgitated this curd onto the arms of Shah. The Shah threw it back onto him and it landed on the ten toes of the sage. The sage said that this was a blessed moment that the Shah had ruined. So the sage prophesied that because of the Shah's actions and the curd on his ten toes, ten generations after the moment his monarchy was established, it would end. And it would seem that that came true. There was a lot of instability in Nepal through this time, but an official constitution was created in 2015. The constitution declares Nepal as a secular, 
inclusive, democratic, and federal state with seven states in the greater federation. It formally ended the constitutional monarchy, establishing Nepal as a federal democratic republic. The constitution established a parliamentary system of government with a bicameral legislature. There was a house of representatives and a national assembly. The president serves as the ceremonial head of state, while the prime minister is the head of the government. The prime minister is appointed from the majority party or coalition in the house of representatives. The Constitution enshrines a comprehensive list of fundamental rights, including the right to equality, freedom of expression, and the right to education. It prohibits discrimination based on various grounds, including gender, caste, ethnicity, and religion. The Constitution emphasized social justice and inclusion, addressing historical discrimination against marginalized communities. It includes provisions for affirmative action to ensure proportional representation of women, Dalits, which were the untouchables, indigenous groups, Madesi communities, and other marginalized groups in the structure of the nation. The Constitution faced protests and opposition, particularly from the Madesi community in the southern Terai region. They raised concerns about the demarcation of federal boundaries and the representation in single-state structures. The Constitution faced protests and opposition, particularly from the Madhesi community in the southern Terai region. They raised concerns about the demarcation of federal boundaries and representation in state structures. They believed that it would be much smarter for more established individual states to be a part of Greater Nepal rather than it being a federation that has the most power over these states. It's a representation issue because there is a small percentage of them in one area this Terai region, but the country hasn't done much to actually help this because there's a lot of other things to deal with. The Constitution has undergone amendments to address concerns raised by various groups. Amendments related to federal boundaries and electoral representations have been among the most continuous ones that go on over and over. There's a lot of issues that have come up with these things, and the hope is that the Constitution can be amended enough times so that everyone is happy, but as an American who's seen our Constitution go through a lot, it's, it's hard to make 300 million people happy for us, and I can't imagine it's that much easier to do it for 30 million people. So, good luck, Nepal. The other issue that Nepal faced at this time was vast instability. The Nepalese have gained quite the taste for resisting their government when they feel they are being oppressed. This manifested many times from 2008 to the present, where over a dozen prime ministers have been forced out of office and replaced. Prime Minister Dweba had to be elected four separate times just to maintain power. The reason for the instability is based on the fact that there are over 100 different ethnicity groups ethnic groups in Nepal, and for all of these different ethnic groups, they have their own history, beliefs, their own political parties that represent them, and the hope to get all of them represented is very hard, because even in a big melting pot country like America, like I live in, there's only so many people to represent, and there is a, either there is a history that is repressed of people like Native Americans and black people, so it's repressed, so it doesn't come up a lot in the government, and then everyone else had a close enough history where for the past 100, 200 years, we all immigrated from somewhere and created the country we know. But with Nepal, we're talking about people that came from extremely different parts of the greater Asian region, and sometimes not even Asia, went through completely different history, have different religious beliefs, and because of the smaller population there, it makes it so that if 5 million people believe this, you've got you know 10% or more of the nation wanting complete change. So for centuries, the culture in Nepal has been for the people to do whatever it takes to challenge the government they do not feel represented by. And this has continued to be the doctrine since the 2013 constitution, where many prime ministers have been replaced. All that, that gets us to the present, where Nepal has a growing tourism sector and an economy that has grown for the last 20 years. Alongside this, Nepalese culture is starting to get mainstream attention from the international travelers. With both the tourist industry booming, Nepal's culture getting attention, and dauntless hikers traveling to Nepal to scale that side of Mount Everest, it seems that Nepal is likely on a path of growth just a short time after a lot of instability. And today, Nepal is figuring out a lot of different things. It is widely seen as a 
pretty stable nation. There is issues internally for the politics that go up and down, and it's been very hard for them to maintain power. But when it comes to people's rights and ability to practice your own religion, live your life on your own, that is what's present. I shouldn't say stability is present because that's not really true. There's a lot of political turmoil, actually. But a lot of nations we review tend to have their rights ripped away and they're truly under abuse like Venezuela and stuff like that. But with this one, it's much more people are able to live their lives. They have their culture. They have their religion. They have their history. There's just a lot of struggle to keep the government from biting its own head off. And that gets us to the very end where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset. And that brings us to the end where I always like to do a, And that brings us to the end where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset to learn from the country's history we just studied. And with Nepal, it's going to be very simply stand up for what you believe in. This nation is an extremely diverse one with so many different cultures, two very different religions that have a bunch of different cultural practices that are present in the country. There are so many different ethnicities. There's so many different things that make Nepal, Nepal, that make the Nepali, the Nepali, that make their culture what it is. And that's taken a lot of resilience. That's taken a lot of fighting. That's taken a lot of struggle against people who don't want to allow that to happen. Now, I say that with Nepal for the sake that this nation has literally executed its kings before. It's had French-level revolutions. They have resisted people at the very top. There's been divisions with other powers. They fought Tibet. They fought China. They fought the British. They fought anyone that they felt in their heart was not good for them, and they've always been the nation to stand up to foreign powers if they were knocking on their door too rudely. And the people of Nepal have always, always been the people to stand up against their own government if it meant the Nepali have always been the people to stand up to their own government if they feel that they have been abused by it, they're not being represented well, or anything of the sort. So Nepal has done that forever, and they have done it many times since 2008. They've overthrown at least a dozen prime ministers because they felt that they were not being represented well. Now, I say this very simply with you as well. Because those things are going to come up in your life, and be it now with the Israel-Palestine situation, be it internal for my country, America, where people of minority color, ethnicity, are underrepresented and abused, where it's political stuff, wherever country you're in, there's going to be something you need to stand up for. And it might not be politics, it might just be in your family, it might be in your friend groups, it might be at school, it might be at work, whatever it is, it's stand up for what you believe in. No matter what the case is, if you believe in your heart what you believe in is good for society, it's good for yourself, it's good for the deep morals you have, it's good for your religion and your faith. If you believe in your heart and your mind that whatever it is you are not liking represents something you need to stand up against and what you feel in your heart represents something you need and the world needs, then stand up for it. Because as long as you're not preaching something horrible like hate or trying to bring someone else down in a terrible way, Who's to say you shouldn't stand up for yourself and stand up for what you believe in? So the Nepali have done that for centuries now, and they are continuing to do it today. And I feel you should do the same. So that is what I have to say for my lesson with Nepal. And with that being said, that is all for me. So I'm just going to sign off here and say I very much enjoyed doing this one. Nepal is a very unique country. I have heard a lot of stuff on social media recently. I've seen the different festivals. I've seen the beautiful architecture, a lot of the paint, the food, different things of that sort, but my favorite part is always figuring out what that country is underneath, all the things you see on social media, and with Nepal, it was very interesting. So the hope is that this country is able to maintain stability for a while, that the prime ministers that get in power, the president, all that continues to be stronger than the past we've seen, and with hope, this nation comes out on top, continues to maintain its beautiful culture, the beautiful cultures that make up this nation, and all things of that sort. So truly thank you all so much for being here. This was an extremely fun episode to do. 
very it's just cool like, i love these unique nations i love unique terrains i love when there's an interesting history behind why a country got here and yeah we all know i kind of got a thing for the small countries too but with all that being said that's going to be all for me so for the last time thank you guys so much for being here my name is reese karlinski this was young history and that was nepal you guys have a good one